is Yvonne from Sam Hayden Danzig, and you're listening to Cobras and Fire. Rock's not dead. <laughs> to the Cobras and Fire Podcast, part of the Decibel Geek Podcast Army, featuring special guest from Danzig, bass player Erie Vaughn, and take it from me, you don't want to find hell with him. Welcome to Cobras and Fire. My name is Baco, and I'm happy to present to you part two of my interview with former Sam and Danzig bass player, Erie Vaughn. Now, when we left off at part one, John Christ had joined Sam Hain, and producer Rick Rubin had just entered the picture. I actually think this is the time of Rick Rubin's career where he earned his reputation. He was producing the Beastie Boys. He uh, somehow got into Slayer's world and produced probably, well, at least what is arguably considered the greatest thrash metal record of all time in Rain and Blood, uh, changing Slayer's sound totally at the time. But even more so, if you listen to some of the, the Sam Hain stuff, the idea that this kid from New York City that was known for rap heard something in those Sam Hain records that very few people even heard, much less liked, and turned it into what we now know as Danzig, to me, is is amazing. If you listen to the work that Rick Rubin did with Johnny Cash before his death on those American recording records, this and the Slayer record largely influenced that, and as well as the Red Hot Chili Peppers record, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, which went on to become a monster. I think the first Danzig, and I think the uh, Slayer Rain and Blood is where Rick Rubin cemented his legacy. But let's get back to the interview with Erie. He's just talking about Rick Rubin entering the picture. Enjoy. Whoa! 
and decided we needed a better drummer, you know, because he wasn't cutting it or whatever. So then we had us, you know, look for drummers, and then we just made like one phone call and called Chuck Biscuits and said, "You want to be in the band?" He goes, "Sure," you know. He was the guy right out of the gate. Well, there was two. There was two. You know, Ruben says to Glenn, "You know, if you could have any drummer you wanted, you know, who 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 your drummers?" And he said, "Well, he wanted Filthy Phil from Motorhead," you know, and um. And that 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 was a bad idea from the beginning because he he's already, you know, older. He's got all this experience. He wouldn't just go along. He, I'm sure he would have been, you know, buttonheads with Glenn. So he said, "Well, what about you know anybody else?" He goes, "Yeah, Chuck Biscuits." That was so, DOA. Was Chuck was it, was that that his band or? Oh, well, Chuck was probably just out of the Circle Jerks by there then. There we go. You know, okay. yeah. Circle Jerks or Black Flag. I think it was Black Flag, then the Circle Jerks. And he was doing his own stuff in Vancouver. He was putting out, like, 45s and stuff okay. and still playing. Um, so, like I said, I don't even know how they got his number because you can't just, you can't just uh, you know, look somebody's <laughs> number up. Was, there was no Internet. Even then, you couldn't, you, yeah. you can't find him. So, anyway, so they called Chuck and... He says, hey, this is Rick Rubin, you know, I'm sitting here with Glenn Danzig, and I don't even know if Chuck knew who Rubin was, because I'm sure he didn't, because all Rubin had done at that point was um, was all rap stuff, you know? Yeah, and, right. And, and, you know, so he didn't know, uh, I'm sure, and he said, I'm sitting here with Glenn Danzig, and he's starting a new band. He goes, well, what would it take you to come out and, you know, either audition or join the band? And Chuck just said, plane ticket, you know, and... uh that was it. He flew in. He moved in with John. You know, they went. They got an apartment together, and we started rehearsing. You know, like right away. And he showed up with a kick drum pedal and a pack of cigarettes. You know, and that was it. And so, um, and, a, and a sweater and a big big sweater. <laughs> and that was it. We started rehearsing right away, mostly in New York, so Ruben could go to rehearsals and you know check our prog- progress and make suggestions and stuff. But that was always a pain in the ass because you couldn't always get it, uh, get get space. We rehearsed at Aerosmith's uh, studio for a while, a couple other places, but we needed a place in Jersey, you know, because that's where we all were, and we could get to rehearsal three times a week and stuff. But from the moment the three of us got in the room together and started playing, it was just really easy, you know. It was just, you know, Chuck and John are such great players that they could just pick it up, you know, especially Chuck. Just, he could play anything. And, you know, so it was it was real easy. And then we just started working on the songs, you know. And would say, okay, I got a song, you know, let's see what happens. You know, here's a riff or... He would take John aside and say, "All right, you know, I'm, I'm hearing things like he would hum stuff." You know, he would. You're talking about Ruben or anything. Danzig at this point? Oh uh, no, Glenn would just. Okay. And John would just sit in the corner, and Glenn would go, you know, like he's like, "This is what I hear in my head." So John would say, "You mean like this?" He goes, "No, not quite. How about like?" He goes, "Okay, how about this?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, no, what?" All right, and John would give him like five different variations of what he was thinking, and just and he go, yeah, that one. So so then we said, okay, this is the riff. It's going to start the song, so we'll play the riff, you know, four times, and then we'll go, you know, maybe we'll then the whole band will come in, and then we'll play over the riff, and then we're going through the verse. So what key is it in? Okay, it's an A, so we're going to stay on A for like four lines, and then we'll go back to the riff, and then you know, you know, that's just how you write a song, you know. So that's the way it worked pretty much the whole time, you know. 
It did sound like that first Danzig record. And I say this retrospectively because the first Danzig album is where I come into the picture as a fan. Uh, but listening to the the Misfits and Sam Hain now, um, it seemed like the, the Danzig was like the natural, pre- uh, I don't know, progression out of Sam Hain. Right. Like, it was like Sam Hain with better musicianship, better songwriting, a little tighter production. Well, yeah, it was, it was the next step. You know, let's see if Sam Hain hadn't happened, then Danzig wouldn't have happened. Exactly. It's like Glenn had to Glenn had to work out what his vision was in his head and needed musicians to do it so he could you know, whenever you write a song, you know, you can you can play it on guitar and it, you know, you can even finish the whole thing. But yeah. until you get in a room with other guys until it sounds just the way you heard it in your head, you can't be done, you know, so so that was the whole thing. So everything had to go. It was a natural progression. And then there was other influences, like John was a big metal guy. So he brought, like, you know, ACDC and Judas Priest and, you know, stuff like that, which, you know, I the only metal I liked was Black Sabbath and Metallica, you know? Okay. And it, it took me years to, like, even listen to ACDC and, you know, but Ruben was big into that and Led Zeppelin and stuff. So he, he had a little hand in there and what kind of beats he might want or what kind of sound he wanted the drums with. Cause he was a big drum type guy. Cause all the rap stuff, he was big on drums. And, um, you know, so there was different influences and the band just sort of evolved and got more into the blues, which basically all those bands were all into the blues too. You know, that, yeah. that's how they all started. So, it just became bigger and heavier. And, and then we would like say have this new song and it was maybe a fast song, get it all worked out and then go, okay, now let's play the Sabbath version. So then we take the same song and just play it like black Sabbath, like really slow. And then just decide, okay, should we, yeah, should, should we do this song like this or like that, you know, or should we do it's the first half, fast and then the middle section slow and then go back fast and then, you know it was just we always said okay let's let's do this Abbott version now you know <laughs> is there a song so, on the first record that uh is a good example of what you're talking about uh the only thing that's on the first record is some of the uh, some of the outros or say the last you know freak out parts where we go double time you know that kind of stuff um like at the end know, of not of this world or yeah, yeah, stuff like that. And that became sort of like what we call the dancing thing, where we just say, okay, where do we go now? We just say, just dancing it up. You know, we'll just we'll just okay. do what we do. And, uh, you know, double time it at the end so everybody, you know, freaks out, you know, and and just, you know, stuff like that. And, it, you know, Sabbath had all these big arrangements, and so did Metallica, you know, like seven different parts, you know. And so, <laughs> you know, we that kind of might have seeped in a little bit. But um, we, we didn't go for that. We were all about the groove, you know, like some like real natural toe tapping kind of, you know, like stripper type thing, you know, like hump, you know, <laughs> what we call the uh, bump and grind kind of shit like she rides. And, you know, all the songs <laughs> well, have that real good fuck rhythm, you know, that's, that's what we used to call it. <laughs> not Nothing sexier than a stripper dancing to mother, right? <laughs> well, yeah, or Twisted Gain or She Rides or whatever. Uh, you know, many times we'd been in strip clubs. And I'm sure. You know, all of a sudden something comes on and they start dancing to it. Glenn just loved that. He, was, he thought that was the greatest. Let me ask you a Rick Rubin question because he gets a lot of, uh, I don't know, uh, 
crap for being a kind of an absentee producer. You got to work with him fairly early on uh, as far as like his like fame uh, as a producer. Now, and he worked well, with you for a few records. Now, was he very hands on, or was he there a lot for the first record? Uh, did it well, did it get slide down? Just tell me about it. Well, see, since we were in Jersey and he was in New York, um, he could only come to rehearsal, or we'd have to go to him every once in a while, maybe can for I, a meeting can, or something. Can I ask a quick so, question? That's kind of a Rick Rubin joke. Okay, go ahead. Is that because his mom couldn't drive to New Jersey? <laughs> Uh, no, I don't. I don't really know. I never met him. Uh, early no. on, when he started with the the, the rap stuff, like uh, I think it was Run DMC, were like, yeah, like like his mom drove him everywhere. He was very young when he started getting into this stuff. Yeah. Well, the first time I ever heard any stuff he did was with the Beastie Boys, and I this friend of mine was into it. He was a young kid, still in high school, and he would play me these songs, and they all had these like AC DC like. Like this, the early stuff had like bam, 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 and then they'd rap, and then they'd come back, yeah. and I was just like, they're just they're just ripping off ACDC. But I think Ruben was actually playing the guitar on that stuff because he he was in a band before that. Oh, I didn't know that. You know? yeah, I only knew found that out a few years ago, and um, so I hadn't heard anything about that, and. Um, he, you know, he was working for Run DMC, and he was actually doing a lot of stuff. And then he did the uh, the Slayer record, the uh, the big one, the That's first right. big one, Rain and Blood, or whatever it was, uh, something like that. Yeah, it was um, Rain and Blood, and then uh, South of Heaven, and then he did the first Danzig record. Those are the the first three that I got familiar with him on. Right, so he was still working on rap stuff, and uh, I believe, yeah. and so. So, so he he wanted to get more into the guitar oriented kind of stuff and things that he probably grew up with, you know, like Zeppelin and things. And he wanted us to be like one of those classic bands. So like was he hands on with you guys? You no. Know. Yeah. Well, at the beginning, yeah. Um, but all the songs had been written pretty much from from Sam Hain, and we had rehearsed like crazy. So we had all the material down. So he didn't really have a lot of input on what. You know the arrangements. His big thing was, you know, drum beats and drum sounds. Okay. And he wanted Chuck to play like Phil Rudd from ACDC. Like every song was boom, ta, boom, ta, boom, ta. You know, which is boring. You know, so he wanted that. And like in between, I remember in between takes, like Chuck would have to run into the control room, and Rick would. He, I, I was watching him. And Chuck would be staring up into the ceiling while Rick was going. I want to hear boom, ta, ta, boom. Ta. And then do oh, this, so he you know, would like, lay down and and communicate. That's true. Well, yeah, yeah, he he did that. But see, then you could see Chuck while we're doing the take, thinking of all these things that he wanted that Rick wanted to put in. You can't be like that. You just have to play it. So that didn't last very long, you know. And we, you know, Chuck would just be sitting there and we'd be working out the song, and he'd just go, "Got to beat you on." You know, we just like give us a give us a John Bonham beat, and he would just do it, and it would be perfect. Give us this, give us a Phil Rudd beat here. Let's do it. The only big thing that Rick had a hand in was making us overdub parts like to death, and that was not punk rock. You know, I mean, you go. Uh, I'm a big feel guy. You you get the feel of the song, the groove of the song, and you make a mistake. That's too bad. You know, if you can fix it, great. But otherwise, you can't fuck with the groove and you know. Right. So, 
songs don't have to be perfect. So he tried to make me overdub Am I Demon like 10 times. And it's a very hard song to play because it's very fast. There's a lot going on. So after a while, I just said, you know, that's it. That, that's enough. You got enough. Mother, and it was originally a fast song, but I can't remember it to save my life. It was more like a crazy punk rock song, and it was really fast. He took it and turned it into ACDC. That's why you get down, 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 down. It's all ACDC. The whole song is ACDC. Wow. You know, and the only remnants of the original version is the end part where we just fucking go crazy. Oh, another version of you danzigging it up, right? Well, yeah, it, it later became that, but but still, um, that was you know I was I didn't agree with that. I mean, the original version of Twisted Cane, I really liked it. Had this really cool groove.
I liked the way the chorus was, and it, you know, had a, a just, it was just great. And then he kind of ACDC that up a little bit too, and, you know, made the riff a little bit more prominent and stuff like that. So I, you know, the song wound up being better. But after that, um, we, we moved out to California, and then he, he was pretty hands on on the Lucifuge record. Um, was there pretty much at every session. And he was big with taking Glenn out to dinner and talking about the band and, you know, what he, what his vision was and what he thought the band would. And as long as they agreed on stuff, that was fine. But if Glenn didn't agree with what he was saying, then we'd say, no, I don't want to do that or that's not what I see or whatever. But he, like I said, he, the reason we had, like, the first record that just has the skull and has no no name of the band on it and there's a gatefold and has that big picture of us in the middle. He he he, he wanted to make make us be like a seventies kind of, you know, band that would be legendary, would last forever, you know, like Zeppelin and the door okay. Black Sabbath. So that's why like, you know, Zeppelin didn't have had records that didn't have Led Zeppelin on the cover, it just had a cover. You know. So eventually they put a sticker on there, you know, that said Danzig and stuff, but and the first, uh, I mean, the Lucifuge cover is just a straight out rip off of the Doors' first album cover. It's almost exact to the the Doors' debut record, you know. So he was definitely pushing that kind of thing, and we were all getting into get into that. I was broadening my musical, you know, listening, and uh-huh. was getting into the whole seventies thing. And I was, you know, already had the big mutton chops, you know, because I'm an Elvis fan. So everybody, you know. I just stopped shaving, just started growing my hair really long and stuff, and so did John, you know. <laughs> and it was just like, you know, that that was the whole vibe. You know, we thought we were, you know, the best band in the world, and we were just going to get become huge, and that was it. And now, during this period, like the first record and, and Lucifuge, uh, did you guys wear shirts at any point? Did we, did we what? Did, did you wear shirts? <laughs> Every picture I see, you guys are just walking around shirtless, just cut like monsters. Well, yeah, John and I went to the gym a lot. That was uh, when we we would rehearse three days a week for about three hours a day, and John and I would go to the gym like five or six days a week and work out for about two hours a day. So we'd go to the gym at 9 o'clock, work out for two hours, rest, go to rehearsal at 3 and till 5, and then we did that. And, yeah, well, you know, Doyle had always, you know, been shirtless and looked like a monster, and so Glenn was kind of into that whole thing. Okay. And John was fine with it, and I did it for a while, but Chuck was never into that kind of stuff we tried to take Chuck to the gym he just it just didn't sit well with him but yeah that was just at the very beginning when we weren't really sure what direction we were going going to look like and stuff like that and and eventually it was just you know Glenn would just go on without a shirt or take his shirt off or whatever but I became less and less comfortable with that and then you know I hurt my back so I had to wear back braces so I couldn't take my shirt off okay so you know, but uh, that was in the beginning, and we weren't really sure. Some of the early photos are pretty funny. The, the, everything is all all good, but with Lucifuge, the songwriting kind of stepped up a bit. Oh yeah, the, it was. The, the, I, I thought that that was lyrically the best record, the best thing Glenn had ever done. The songs were very poetic. You know, um, I just really, really liked them, and the band was, you know so tight we rehearsed a lot when we lived in la too it, it was regular schedule just like a job and it was it was great and by the time we got into the studio we didn't have to do anything you know we might change you know rearrange a little bit or change a part here or there um but other than that 
it was just here's a suggestion, you know, from Ruben or whatever. But we were we would rehearse without him. He'd come down once in a while. But Glenn would say something like, Okay, we got the song, it's done, but Rick's gonna want us to try this or try that. He says, I already know. So let's try this the way he maybe suggested something. God said, okay, I'll, we'll think about it. So then we would try a uh, arrangement or something that we thought Ruben would like. And then we'd go, what do you think? And we'd be like, no, nah, it doesn't work. So when, then when he would come down, he would say, what, what about this? And going, no, we already tried. It doesn't work. So that would be the end of that. Huh. And in the studio, we, we tried to um, use a click track for the first time, which we had never done. And Chuck, you know, being Chuck and the punk rock drummer never had to worry about that. And his timing was good. He he never sped up unless it was necessary. You know, like in your normal groove, you know, you speed up, slow down, speed up, you know, when it comes to like live shows. Yeah. So we tried doing a click track. We tried doing it and it was just, it was just kind of flat. I mean, it's, it's better for overdubs and the things like that, that you can, everything's in perfect timing, which is boring, you know, so we abandoned that pretty quick, you know, tried a couple of takes and just said it don't work. So we just, we just threw that out the window. But yeah, he was there a lot during that. Places I've lived, you don't wanna know. Well, if you wanna hear evil, let's come a little bit close. I was a snake-eyed boy, when up the age of five, I made love to the howl of the wolves. With the dark-haired girl So if you wanna hear evil I'll come a little bit close She whispered in my ear Little boy, you the one Set the world to rights Or make it tremble in fear do it one more time Cause you're the one, you're the one But then he started working with other bands. Like he might have started working with Chili Peppers then. I'm not yeah. sure. And so he wasn't time, around anyway. all the time. Yeah. yeah, he wasn't around all the time. He was always busy. And then, you know, later on, it'd be, Reap would be in the studio for a couple hours and Rick wasn't there. And then he'd call and say, where are you at? And say, well, we just did this. We just did that. He goes, he goes, okay. 
uh, you know, do this and call me in an hour. You know, so we'd go back and work on stuff and usually worked with the engineers. We had some great engineers and just work on the stuff and have it down. Most of the shit was like one or two takes. Um, and then he'd come down and the first thing he would do was order lunch, you know? So then we got to wait till he eats lunch and stuff and take a break <laughs> and then go back. But a lot of times, you know, I remember a few things like we'd be working on something like first record, second record. I can't remember. It could have been the third one, but he would like hold the phone and he'd call somebody and said, this is incredible. You got to hear it. And then he'd do a playback and he'd hold the phone next to the, to the speakers to play it for somebody over the phone. He goes, is that fucking awesome? You know, whatever, you know? And you know, so that was pretty cool, but like he got busier and busier. He was in the studio a lot less and had a lot less to do with, you know, um, the arrangements and coming to rehearsals. And we already knew what, what direction we were going and how we were, you know, the image of the band and all that stuff. So, um, he became less and less important. And actually we did the third record, like without him, you know, we totally did it on our own. And, and since Glenn was like sort of producing, and we had this great engineer, um, we just, we knew the songs in our sleep. So we'd play one and, it, you know, the first take, we'd be like, that's really good. All right, well, let's try to beat it. And we play another one. Then we just pick from those two. We rarely did more than two or three takes after the first record. First record, there was like 18 takes a mother, you know. Okay. And that's awful. Yeah. I don't know which take we used, but uh, <laughs> I remember being a stack of boxes and they all said mother on them. Mother! You know. Oh. <laughs> but now we're on to dancing three, how the gods kill. Yeah, my dirty black. 
you're saying that Rick wasn't really there that much. No, he got executive producer credit, which means basically he paid for it. So it was still, you know, still a nod. And plus, uh, the record company was changing distributors. They went from uh, uh, Geffen to Warner Brothers, I think. And, you know, so... Another step so, forward you know, for me, though. I, I think this this record goes past Danzig, too. Oh, yeah. This, uh, that was, you know, everybody always asks me what my favorite one is, and uh, that's my favorite, Danzig 3, because th- that was the best example of the band at the time, the way we sounded. That was what Danzig sounded like, you know. And then live, that was the same way. You know, this was the best. The band was at the height right there. And like I said, we, we recorded the, the third record, we had five days to record it. We recorded the whole thing in four days, and then we're in the studio and still got a whole day to do whatever. So we get in a car. I think Ruben was there at that, that particular time. We all, well, Glenn and I and Ruben went down to uh, Tower Records on Sunset and went looking through the racks to find like a, a cover song. You know, like, so Glenn bought this uh, T Rex box set. He had like T Rex when he was younger. So we wound up doing a song called Buick McCain and uh, just brought it down, uh, put it on the PA and listened to it like three or four times. And I'm like, Chuck, you got your thing? I'm like, he's like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I know what I'm doing. Okay. And John's like, I'm not really sure what I should play on this. <laughs> so we we basically, you know, did a couple of takes of that and said, okay, that's good enough. You know, John still was like, I'm not happy with my part, you know, or whatever. So, and that, we never that ended that up out. on the uh, Lost Tracks that Danzig released. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like I said, yeah, four days to record the whole album, and like I said, basically two takes, maybe three takes, but mostly one or two. A lot of them are first takes, two takes that wound up on the record, and that's good because you know you you got the energy, you got the feel, you know it's fresh, and uh, that's why the record's like that. And then we wound up mixing it at A uh, and M Studios, and we brought in a, an outside mixer. You know, which I would have rather had our engineer mix it because he was there the whole time. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure which engineer it was. It might have been Jim Scott. He's a Grammy Award winner, Jim Scott. Um, <laughs> that I would have had him, I would have rather had him mix while the rest of us stood around and put, gave her our two cents. You know what I mean? So they bring in this outside guy. Don't even remember who he was. But we're doing, um, we're, do, we're, we're running down the left hand black, right? And there's this, there's two sections where the guitar drops out, and it's just bass and drums, right? So, of course, when the bass is sitting in the mix, normally, you know, it's a little lower. So, all of a sudden, there's no guitar, so you got to bring the bass up, right? So, I'm standing there, and you, it, 
all you hear is drums and a little bit of bass in the background or whatever. And I said, no, bring the, you got to bring the bass up so we can hear what's going on. So the guy brings it up and I go, yeah, that's fine. And, and then just bring it back down when the guitar comes back in. So he does that. And I like leave for whatever, leave the room. Next time the pass comes around, he doesn't do it again. He doesn't bring the bass up to, so you hear on the records. You can hear the bass in the first part. You can't hear it in the second part. I was just like, why wasn't I still in the room? Yeah. You know, st- I mean, really, you know, that's just basic shit. I mean, I was, that was really annoying. But the, I, the I have to take you back, though. Really the entire record was recorded in four days. Yeah. And like, that's like 14 songs. That's like. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, early weekend, right? No, we still went in on Friday. To well, I, yeah, I know what you're saying, but I'm like, it's literally four days. I mean, they could be long days, but it's an amazing sounding record. Well, you know, like I said, we knew the songs. We were so well rehearsed, you know. We, you know, you rehearse three times a week or, or more okay. for three hours a day. You get down, you get the songs down, you know, like, and they were they were perfect. And and they had a good groove and everything was just you know we we were just loving it you know so you know I'm gonna give a little like, bit of the oh, credit you to your to your punk rock history though the idea that well yeah that, see you know yeah exactly I was gonna say that you know like punk rock records like the Misfits recorded an all a whole album in one day you know that's you know that's and it was the way they would it work. was fifty eight songs. <laughs> yeah, no, they were all, you know, at 300 yeah. miles an hour. No, this yeah. is like the MSP stuff, and they probably did more than one session for um, for Walk Among Us. But No, I know what you um, meant. I was making a joke, but that, yeah. Yeah, but, the, but the, the, mostly the reason for that is because you don't you don't have the money to spend. So, you know, recording was like 50 right, bucks an hour here, or whatever. Here you do, and damn, you're done in four days. I mean, you beat Black Sabbath's first record. You beat Van Halen well, one. There was also there was also the the also the incentive which you know didn't it wasn't really an incentive but it was still there that you would get an advance from the record company they would say okay right. now that you sold some records we're going to give you four hundred fifty thousand dollars to record this next album okay so if you you bring it in under <laughs> budget you get the rest of the money you know so that was always good. It's amazing um, that doesn't it incentiv- uh, incentivize more musicians. Oh, it probably does. I'm just, you know. Well, I back then anyway. Yeah, no, I don't but, think that really exists yeah. now. Oh, I don't know. Uh, but, no, it's just we we went in, you know, say do two, three songs a day, you know, uh, work 10, 12 hours. When we yeah. get tired, we said, okay, we'll come back tomorrow. So, and then we, you, we generally go in and say, okay, what did we do yesterday? Listen to, you know. It's like a board mix and say, okay, that's good, let's move on. You know, and, and that was it. And do that. And then John would come in, say, the next week and do all his guitar leads and do some rhythm overdubs. And that would take maybe a week. And then Glenn would come in and do his vocals in a couple of days. And that was it. You know, and yeah, so, so, I mean, the, all the basic tracks were done in four days. But then, you know, the overdubs took another week, and then the vocals took another week. So, you know, you're looking at like three weeks. I understand. Everything in the can, you know. Before Danzig 4, the EP comes out. Uh, and I heard, I don't know if this is mythology. You tell me. Uh, what, did did Chuck need money for something so that you, you guys decided to do like an EP and you had to convince the record label to do it, you know, or... 
some kind of variation on that. Not that I'm aware of. Uh, Chuck always did need money because he spent all his money on uh, like art supplies and stuff. Okay. You know, so and that stuff's not cheap. Um, and he was not really great with money. But um, no, I don't think that was the case. I think we had a couple of songs, and maybe there was talk about doing a live record. Maybe Glenn didn't want to do a whole live record, and he had these other songs that were sort of like Sam Hain songs. Yeah. We wanted to do the Elvis cover that we had recorded on every album but never put out. And for those who trouble. aren't aware, this is where Mother became the huge hit. Yeah, they decided they, they decided to put uh, put out the put out a like a, a like a remixed version of Mother on there. I don't know. I haven't looked at the record lately, but like, and then we had the live version or whatever that was on there, and it was just a thing. And then they put out like a a single with the live version and then the studio version. Yeah. And then that got a bunch more airplay only like five years after it had come out originally, you know, like sort of like dream on from Aerosmith, you know? Yeah. Well, we did the live video. See, that's what sold all the records. Right. Oh yeah, yeah we, absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah, the audio this. on the video was not matching the audio on the, uh, C- the CD. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I do. But I... we, you know, we, we had, um, all, you know, all the videos we'd put out, Glenn was always like, I want to do whatever I want. Screw MTV. They're not going to play us anyway. And I'm like, yeah, we're not playing this because of the stuff you're, you're you know, making us do. <laughs> They're not going to play that. And so he's just like, fuck them, you know. But they, I think they hired the people to do, like, NFL films or something. You know, when you see those uh, yeah. clip shows, that, you know, on Saturdays. I'm not sure, but I think that's what happened. And they came in and just pretty much did the thing like like it was a sporting event and just we had we played had played this um uh you know what's it called oh i don't know irving something or something irving whatever um in uh california and it was like the biggest show we'd ever done on our own it's like thirteen thousand people and white zombie opened up and i forget who else might have been typo negative i'm not sure but yeah, that was the biggest show we'd ever done on our own, and it was on Halloween, and we recorded the whole thing. It was amazing, and they used like all the footage from that, and maybe from one or two other shows. Okay, and that then MTV said, "Oh, we can deal with this because I think they their upper echelon had changed, you know." And they were like, 
this is great. Let's, you know, let's play this. So they, they played it like five times a day on MTV. And then everybody started saying, what the hell is this? Look at these guys. And then everybody started buying the records, like all these other people that didn't even know who we were or anything about the past bands or whatever. And that's where we sold all the records, you know, and that's, that's if we had been being played on MTV from day one, I'd be talking to you from, you know, Bel Air in a nice big house, you know. <laughs> uh, odds are you wouldn't be talking to me at all. <laughs> uh, no, I still, I still would. Yeah, all right. I, that, thank you, Erie. I appreciate that. Well, not just you, everybody, you know. Yeah, no, okay. No, 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 I understood. Uh, but that brings us to Danzig 4, you know, which to me was kind of the end of the, the classic era of Danzig. I'm still a fan of everything that happened after this, but to me, this is kind of where, you know, the it wasn't the peak. I love the record, but it, it probably, I don't know, I don't, I don't know where I'd rank it. I don't really care about that kind of crap. I think it's an awesome record, but this was the last incarnation that featured you, Chuck, uh, John, and, and Glenn. Right. So uh, tell me about the recording of the record and what the hell happened. Well, it's more of the same, you know, pretty much. The songs, had, you know, there was a couple of more, you know, what I would consider dancing-type songs, but there was also some weirder stuff or some stuff that I considered more like Sam Hain material, you know. When people ask me, they say, well, how would you describe the record? I said, yeah, well, it's like a Sam Hain record as far as I'm concerned. You know, maybe Sam Hain, if they had evolved and got a little bit more rocky. Let me stop stuff, you a little bit got, there. It, uh, I had never even thought about that, but I think you're right. I'm looking at the song titles right now. I mean, songs like I Don't Mind the Pain, um, shoot, uh, Going Down to Die, Dominion, Can't Speak. These are more that kind of g- almost getting back to a gothy vibe. Yeah, you and I, I totally understood it. This is what direction that Glenn thought he wanted to go. And it was just a natural progression. You know, these are the songs I'm writing now. And I totally got it. And, of course, Chuck was just the same way, like, uh, what kind of beat do you want? He's a you know? drummer. But but John didn't really understand the record and wasn't really happy with his contribution, I don't think. Um, he thought that the songs weren't finished, that it, we could have used more, you know, polishing on the stuff or whatever. But... I love the vibe of the songs, and I, I it's one of the CDs that's it's in the car when I run out of stuff to listen to. I throw it on every once in a while, and there's some great stuff on there, and there's some great, like, moods and, like, the way the band moves the song around, and none of that was in the mix. That was all the way it was recorded, like like if we were playing a live show, which we all okay. played live, live in the studio. You know, we recorded as a band live in the studio every record, you know. So that was all about the way the band played the songs. So mixing it, all you had to do was EQ and get good sounds, but the rest of it was all the band. And so I, I, I'm, I really like that record. There's only like one song maybe I don't like or whatever, but um, Which one? for the most part. Oh, I don't like Can't Speak, you know, but that was my idea. So I can't really say too much <laughs> about it, you know. They just didn't like the, you know, I mean, I like the way it came out. It was okay, but it's not exactly, I mean, I don't think we ever played it live. We we might have, but I, I'm not sure. Yeah, really? That was the first times. video, wasn't it? I don't know. I don't remember. It was a but, video. Yeah. You, you remember that? Yeah, I was I was barely in it. I was. I think my back was, was killing me, so I, I could barely do okay. anything, so I just kind of stood there. I Don't Mind the Pain is my favorite track in the record.
That one, that face, that face part really gave me a problem because it, it, the way it was timed, and I was trying to play it, and I'm like not getting it, and Glenn's just like, no, it's you know, because he he wrote the song, so he knows how the rhythm goes. So I go, well, you play it then. So I hand him the bass, and he goes like this. You gotta like you gotta come in at a certain time. It's just it always reminds me of this um, um, this Stone song where Charlie Watts didn't know how, where to come in, and the the the, um, the saxophone player Bobby Keys comes in and says, "No, it's this. You come in on this beat," and and Charlie's just like, "I don't hear that." He's like, "No, it's this. so that it was exactly the same thing." Where Glenn goes, "No, no, it's you got to. It's like pause, go, doom. Now you're in. You know what I mean?" I'm like, "Oh, okay. Now I get it." You know. So that's always a song that I like, and I love the middle. By the point, by the time we got to like Dancing Four. Um, it was basically we were rehearsed and, you know, we'd be sitting there and Glenn would be trying to find these ideas or these rips on his little pocket uh, tape recorder that he carried around. And he would be sitting there and, he, no, that's not it. And it'd take him like half an hour to find where the, the idea was that he had had in the car or whatever. So me and Chuck would go out and have a cigarette or go play pool or something. And him and John would sit there and then same thing would happen. He would... He would say, this is the idea I got, this is a riff I hear in my head, whatever, and John would say, 
okay, we'd just basically polish it up and say, okay, this is it. And then we'd come back in. I'd say, what key is it in? And Chuck would say, what, what beat do you want? And then we'd just hash it out, you know? It was, and, and by that time, everybody knew their their role, what, what to play and what not to play, because, you know, with great drummer and a great guitar player and a great singer and stuff, my part as a bass player was just to, to, to accent all that stuff and not try to be like, you know, a, a great bass player, just play what's necessary for the band and for the song. And so it was so simple, so easy to do at that point that it was, you know, it was just nothing. And the, the, the wow. sessions were the same. We recorded all the stuff in, you know, like a week. And that was basically it, you know. And I thought that it was a good record. And there was... Um, a lot of the songs live were good, um, and we, some we didn't play, you know. Uh, but there's, uh, you know, I mean, I've got videotape outside. Somebody's using my camera, and they're talking to Glenn, or they're just filming people. And you can hear us doing, um, what's that song? I don't know, I can't remember, but it's the one that's got the, the, the real jazzy drumming, like on the on the. The, you know, the end of the snare, you know, on the rim. It's like, it's like really cool, jazzy kind of thing. It's like, you know, and I'm like, I'm really, and then it goes, you know, it's just, you know, some I'm just like, this is a great song. And it just would make you crazy, you know. And But it was totally different for what we were doing so that's where you know little bits like that there's little sammy bits in there you know and like oh on the thrall ep like glenn played some some guitar and you know he was doing this like two finger chords and weird noises and stuff like he used to do on sam Hain, you know just overdubs and john was thrilled with that you know but it was gave it that feel that's why sam Hain sounds the way they do because glenn played a lot of guitar on that stuff yeah. Every time he'd go to the studio, he'd play a different part, and there's like ten guitar parts in the song. You know, <laughs> you know, it's like everyone. It's like, how do you get that sound? It's like, well, half the time it wasn't. They weren't all in tune with each other or something. You know, different guitar, different amps or something, and you know, just another part. You know, give me another track, and you know, we got to put these two little two string things in here. You know, you know. Well, how did it all fall apart? Uh, I don't know. Uh, we weren't. We were. We we were supposed to be the next Metallica. That's what everybody was saying. You know. Really. Um, and yeah, and we were going to be. We were going to be that big. You know. That's was. That's oh, in that sense, because I actually was. the one thing that I love about Danzig, it sounds like Danzig. It, it it was a new sound. It was something fresh, and it just kept progressing. Uh, but anyway, carry on. Well, it wasn't that we were going to change. We're just going to keep progressing, but we no, they, you know, like yeah. But why aren't playing. you still doing it? You guys were great. I mean, Glenn well, still well, is going saying, out there. Just as saying, we were, they, they, they expected us to start selling those kind of records and playing. Oh, I gotcha. Playing, you know, arenas and all this stuff, and that was just, you know, what everybody expected. But when we didn't get the, you know, MTV, yeah, when you didn't turn and, into uh, Green Day, they bailed on you. No, no. Um, it was just, there was also like things that were, you know, promised that, you know, at this level, you know, everything's going to be even and then you're going to get this much and everybody's oh. going to get a cut of this or whatever. And that didn't happen. So, you know, Chuck was like, all right, well, I don't want to do this anymore. So he kind of left the band, you know, and that was it. So, 
But, you know, he had never been in a band more than like a couple of years. You know, DOA, he was in the band for the longest time. But he went from like to Black Flag and he was in the band for a year, maybe two. Circle Jerk, same thing. He was more like, you know, have have gun will travel. You know, Yeah, and none if of those bands bored. made the kind of money that Danzig was making at this point. Yeah, well, Chuck told me he gets better royalties from DOA than he does from Danzig. So, you know. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, that was the whole thing. He, I think he got bored. Uh, he wasn't happy about, you know, whatever he wasn't happy about. And uh, just decided he wanted to move on or not do anything, you know. And then he went on to play with Social Distortion for like a year. You know? well, what about but, John? What yeah, about just, you? it just happened. Hmm? What about John? What about you? Well, once Chuck left the band, there was a lot of the soul was gone, you know. It wasn't the same. You know, you get pretty close when you're on the road with somebody, you know, for years. And you're... You know, you're together every day, and yeah. you know, uh, in rehearsals and everything else, and you become very close. And then, you know, when you take some element out of that, like any you know really good band, you just take something out. It's like a recipe. You know, you forget to put the salt in; don't taste the same. You know, so it was just one of those things for me. I don't know how it was for John, but who uh, left first, you or John? Uh, well, it was kind of kind of a mutual thing. John wanted to quit the band after the first record, you know. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, he wasn't happy from, like, day one, you know. Um, but I told him, I said, listen, you 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 stick it out. You, you'll you make a name for yourself. You're a great guitar player. You get, you, you know, John Christ out there, and then maybe you could do your own thing, or you could join, like, Ozzy's band, or do something like become the next Randy Rhodes or right. whatever. And I always said, you just... You know, do your thing, and and it'll it'll happen. You know, and I think he just was discouraged, and maybe he didn't have the kind of input that he really wanted. And you know, like I said, Chuck was just, you know, okay, it's been like eight years or whatever. You know, time to move on, and that's just what happens with bands. You know, people come and go, or the band just runs its course, and just that's it. You know. Do you stay in touch with either of them at all, or even Glenn? No, I haven't talked to Glenn in a long time. Um, I, I talked to John maybe a year or two ago, but before that I hadn't talked to him in like 10 years. And I talked to Chuck a few times some years ago, but then he just dropped out of sight. And um, I haven't talked to him in, a, I don't know, maybe 10 years at least. Maybe more, you know. Just one of those things. I saw um, uh, a Sam Hain reunion when uh, Glenn was touring with Danzig. I think it was, oh, shoot, 2000, 2002, somewhere in that area. And they had London. Was there any effort to reach out to you to join that? Uh, I think they did the first one uh, when I was still in Jersey. I moved back to Jersey. Um, So that was like, it might have been earlier than that, like 99 or I don't know. I know they they've done like ten of them. Um, yeah, th- I think Steve might have called me and asked me. I said, yeah, if you get if you get uh, Damien, you know, do it. But he was playing with Dicky Pop and yeah. was not interested or didn't want to do it. I said, no, I'm not doing it without him. Okay. You know, so that was the end of it. And then later on, like years later, I, I heard all. Oh, Whenever they, you know, they've done interviews, it said, "Oh well, we didn't, we didn't want Erie because he doesn't get along with Steve in London, and we, we all want to have fun and have a good time and all this." And I'm like, "Oh, that's interesting." 
Um, <laughs> you know, or they would say, oh, Erie's back's too bad, he can't tour anymore, or whatever, which is partially true. Um, but, yeah, I would have done it if they would have got the original band together, you know? Otherwise, why bother, you know? Yeah, fair enough. How did you get uh, uh, involved in the Misfits box set? Because that was what got me into the Misfits, frankly. Yeah, well, I was I was still in Jersey, and I was putting out my own record, the first record I did after the band um, broke up. Um, and I was thinking, well, who can I get to put this out? So I called uh, Caroline Records, who had put out the Misfits later stuff and the Sam Haynes stuff. So I, I call and I talk to the A&R guy, you know, Tom, who did the box set. And I, he said, well, come on down and, you know, play us the stuff or whatever. So we had a meeting and actually Lyle was, uh, Lyle Pretzler was uh, working with them at the time in some capacity. So the two of them were in the meeting and we just, um, you know, Tom said, I love this record. This is great. You know, I want to put this out. I said, great. How much money can you give me? You know, so they gave me an advance, and uh, I paid for the thing. And me and the guy who I did it with, we split the money, and they put it out, and that was it. So yeah, so we kept in touch, and uh, he, you know, told me he wanted me to write the liner notes of doing the Misfit box set. They they bought all the, you know, stuff from uh, oh Caroline or whatever. Sure. Or they they well Caroline had acquired all the stuff. So they had all the masters and, you know, they were going to dig through everything and pull out um, stuff nobody's heard or, you know, mixes nobody's heard or whatever. So he said, I want you to write the liner notes and provide some photos or something. And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I'm like, how much are you going to pay me? He's just like, oh, we'll give you this much money. I'm like, yeah, that's okay. I'll take it. So did that. And then I gave him like artwork for all the records you know like i made copies of uh, color copies of all the records and gave them some old flyers and and then found out that they didn't have um the tapes for uh she and cough cool the first ever mistress record right i'm like you gotta be kidding me how are you putting out a box set and you don't have the first record they ever recorded no shit. Like, well, we can't, we don't have it. He's like, we can't find it. It, we, we, it wasn't with the tapes, you know, and this, that, and the other thing. So I, so I said, listen, I got a pristine copy of the record, like, you know, beautiful, never played, like right off the pressing plant. I said, I'll, I'll get somebody to make a tape of it. So our uh, sound man's brother had all this recording stuff, and he had a DAT recorder. And he, he, he recorded the, uh, you know, side A and side B of that. On a DAT tape, I gave it to Tom, and uh, they they wound up putting it on the thing, so that wouldn't be there either. Um, so you know, and that came out. It was in a coffin. I was like, "This is great," you know. So, and then we just, you know, stayed in touch. And he's the one who um, worked on a book with me, and you know, did all that shit. So that's how that happened. <laughs>
great job with it. I, I've, I've read it probably at least five times. <laughs> I also am holding your solo record on CD, The Blood in the Body. Uh, this, this seems like kind of a throwback record to me, like almost a DIY, just this is just raw, just almost grungy, gothy kind of music. I, I th- oh, I didn't have hardly anything to record. I did it on a four-track cassette player, you know, cassette tape. With a, a drum machine, it I, sounds like. Well, yeah, well, that's because I went to Toys R Us and bought a, a Casio keyboard that had some some drum stuff on there, and I didn't use a whole lot of, only a couple of songs have that on there, you know. And I all I had was a acoustic guitar, a microphone, and a distortion box. That's all I had. Plus that Casio keyboard that I played some of the things. So I wound up using sound effects, and, you know, I recorded for timing. I recorded you know, like a clock ticking and things like that. Like, and, and I, you know, tapped on the top of the microphone to make drum sounds and, you know, so it was all, you know, very minimal, but that's, that's what I could do. And I wanted to put out a record. So, you know, I like some of the songs I like, and I, I like some of the, um, you know, a lot of the lyrics and stuff and some of the songs I hate. I think but, the lyrics are very yeah. good on this. Uh, I, but I love the DIY aspect, like because it was nineteen, uh, was it two thousand or just late nineties, ninety eight, ninety nine, something like that. It was like ninety eight. Yeah, think. I mean, just the idea that someone's still doing something like that to me was very appealing when I listened to it. Because, yeah, I mean, it's not a clean, it's not a cleanly produced record. I was just doing whatever I could using, you know, I mean, some of the old blues guys used to use, you know, boxes for kick drum sounds yep. and things like that, whatever you could use. And what, that's all I had, you know, so I just did what I wanted to do. And mostly it was feel. That's why it's, some of the songs are very sparse and it's just about, you know, the mood and stuff. So yeah, very, very low tech. Then I, then I, you know, I pressed like a thousand copies and I sold, you know, a bunch of them. And then um, either I called Cleopatra or somebody got in touch with me and I, you know, or I, and I made a deal for them to continue to press the record and buy out what I had and, you know, give me an advance or whatever so I could continue to live. And <laughs> then they took it over and they, you know, you know, pressed it some more. Because the original pressing doesn't have any record company on it. And, you know, that's how you can tell. That was it, and then I moved to I moved to, uh, down to Florida with the money that I got. I think I got some T-shirt money from Danzig um, that was you know back T-shirt money, and 
or, or I now I got it when we were recording the fourth record, but I still had it in the bank. So went down to Florida, bought a big old house, um, and then recorded um, Bad Dream and did the same thing. But I by then I had figured out, you know, because I had my drums, I had real guitars and basses and stuff, um, so I could play everything, and I played live drums. And I was making these tape loops and things, but I was doing them on cassette, you know, not like computer because there's sure. no computer, you know. So I was doing them like, you know, Pink Floyd or the Beatles or somebody was doing like, I was recording like six tracks and then bouncing them all on one track and then recording something else and then bouncing the two of those, you know, and having all these things. And that became like a background. And then I'd start playing the drums to it or whatever. And just a lot of sound effects, things that I found and, you know, just just whatever, and it was basically the, the 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 same as Blood in the Body, except I had real instruments to play. You know, and just did that. You know, and then I was supposed to put out another record in between, or I was working on another record, but that one crashed. My whole hard drive crashed. By then, oh. I was using a digital recorder, and that all crashed. So I wound up working or taking all these punk rock songs that I had written over the years and recording all them and then I did this one called Spider Cider so and that was just all stuff I had in the can or on the shelf I, I have a couple more Danzig questions and that's going to be it for that if I heard you right you have not talked to to Glenn at all since uh, you left the band is that correct? yeah any what would it take to get a reunion going is it just pretty much him going say yeah it's okay um, well, there would, I, you know, there would be certain stipulations, you know, certain things would have to, would have to happen. We'd have to have Chuck and John. Um, oh, that's what I'm talking know. about. Not just you. I'm talking about that whole well, yeah, lineup. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, doesn't seem like, you know, anybody really cares. It's like, well, you got one guy that was in the band, you know, or whatever. Um, not for me. I be. want all four of you guys back. Yeah, well, that's that's the first thing, and then there's a few other things, you know, that that have to be taken care of, um, and you know, just the way it just there has to be certain things that make to make it happen. But uh, you know, Glenn doesn't need us. He's got he's had 27 guys in his band since we <laughs> left, and you know, um, he can get anybody to play that stuff. I mean, eventually he'll probably um, have you know, like just studio type guys that are playing and he'll just be, you know, like, you know, do the Elvis thing or whatever, play Vegas, you know, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, uh, I think the songs have stayed consistent with him, but the recordings and production have just, I don't know, kind of declined. That's my thoughts. My personal feeling on that is that's how I feel. Yeah, whatever. Well, let me ask you this. The Misfits got back together. They're doing these one-off shows all over the place. They played uh, the L.A. Forum. It sold out in like three minutes. And there's probably more people in that crowd than actual albums sold by the Misfits during Glenn's time in the band, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's all, and probably 90% of the crowd weren't even alive when the band was together. You know, <laughs> I would um, hope it's much less than ninety percent, but yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. Well, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just saying. But yeah, I was, um, I was surprised they could play places that big, you know, um, after all this time. But, um, you know, Danzig played bigger places, sold more records. Um, Jerry'd been on the road all this time, still playing the songs. Doyle was still playing the songs, you know. So people 
you know, the stuff was being kept alive by all sure. those guys. So, of course, people are going to want to see, you know, the original band. How do you feel about that is my question, because you actually... I mean, you played with Glenn, and you were witness to uh, one of the most instrumental. I mean, let me let me say it this way, Erie. I th- I th- I do believe Glenn belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, even though I don't think that building matters that much because of the Misfits and because of your era in Danzig. Uh, how does it feel to know that you you basically were there for a lot of this? Do you feel good? Are you proud? Are you upset? Or I'm, yeah, I'm very proud of the the, the songs, the, the records, and uh, all the people we made happy, and and the live shows were always great. Um, I think it's a great thing, you know. And never thought, you know, from back then uh, when Misfits are playing to 50 people, you know, 200 people, or whatever, that anything would ever come of it, or anybody would even care. Right, and then. You know, I, it wasn't until Danzig that I didn't that I thought that something you know could be really big. Um, but yeah, oh, I'm I'm very proud of all that stuff, and I think it's great. You know, it's it's the legacy, and I'm I'm glad you know younger kids are getting turned on to all this stuff, and and they're forming bands and all. That's what it's all about, anyway. You know, so uh, I know I'm very happy about all that stuff, and you know, I I I prom- promote and still support. Everybody who's ever been in any of the bands, you know. What do you got going on now? What anything to, uh, to promote for Irivan? I'm just working on a, a the new book. You know, uh, it's going to be more of just the photos and not so much you know story because sure. I already told the story. So it's going to be like more of a photo book, pictures, a lot of stuff that no one's ever seen, a lot of stuff I haven't seen in a long time, and they're all getting you know cleaned up and. You know, uh, you know, I have to just sit there and tell my manager who's working on the record, you know, what the crop here and how I want this to look and, you know, what, you know, use this photo, don't use that photo, whatever. And so that's my main thing. Now, I have plenty of material to do a new record and I've got everything demoed. I just don't have the money or really, you know, the people to play with. You know, down here, everybody's got it a job and they're in three bands and they all have their own thing they want to do. And I have yet to find anybody that I can really say, okay, this is the record I want to make. You want to help me make it, you know? So I'll, I'll put out another record when, when I do, you know, but I'm mostly uh, focused on, you know, my painting that I've been doing since Ooh, nice. time, since 99 and sold like almost 400 paintings since then. And the, the book, you know, take it from there. You know, I do some shows every once in a while, but it's not something that I really need to do. Done, done everything I wanted to do with <laughs> dancing. So, um, been everywhere, played in front of millions of people. It doesn't, it's not something that I wake up and go, Oh, I really want to go down to the street corner and play some songs in front of people you know, or whatever, or get up and do this or that, you know, Erie, this has been a huge pleasure for me uh talking to a member of danzig and a guy who was there to witness i eyewitness of of the birth of uh my favorite punk rock band the misfits thank you so much for your time hey no problem man i love doing interviews that i don't need to do any research on 
Thank you very much to Erie Vaughn. If you are a fan of Danzig or the Misfits or Sam Hain, how could you not like that interview? Man, he had so much to share and was so 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 kind and gracious, wasn't he? I hope you had fun. I'd like to remind everybody who's listening right now that Cobras and Fire will be in Nashville on August 25th at the Rockin' Pod Expo. You should check it out. You should uh, go- you should stop right now. Hit pause uh, after I tell you this next thing. Uh, hit pause as soon as I'm finished this next sentence. Go Google Rockin' Pod Expo Nashville. You're back? Okay. Now, you're going to want to come. You're going to want to meet me. You're going to want to meet all these other podcasters. But more importantly, you're going to want to meet people like Ron Keel. You're going to want to meet people like Head from Corn and uh, Paul Taylor from Winger. I mean, just there are so many people coming to this thing, and it's the second year in a row, and it was so much fun last year. Trust me, if you like the show and you can make it, you should come. If you can't, there is a way you can contribute and just help out with a buck, two bucks, five bucks, ten dollars. There is no big corporate entity like Warner Brothers putting this on. This is a self-funded event by fans and podcasters. So definitely, if you can help out, check it out. And and if you can come, even better. Also, don't forget that Cobras and Fire recently joined Twitter. We just found out about this thing called Twitter. Please look us up on Twitter and check us out. Go to iTunes, give us a five-star rating or whatever you think we deserve. Do the same thing on Facebook. Give us a like. Give us a shout-out. We might talk about you on the show. If you're new to the program, you can find us anywhere podcasts are served up. Please give us a follow. Let us know what you think. You know, especially if you just if you're checking in for the first time because of the Erie Von Danzig thing. We have all sorts of episodes that maybe you'll like, especially if you like a little bit of a sense of humor with your uh, morning commute uh, podcast. And for my co-host Luz Cannon, my name is Baco, and never forget, rock is not dead. It's just a misfit. <laughs>
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 